Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange, stories by leaders for leaders to help you to raise the bar on your own performance and to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's episode. Hey everyone, it's Hugh Ballou back for this episode of the Nonprofit Exchange. This is episode number 303. We recently celebrated 300 with uh, the founder of this and the uh, who was the executive director of Center Vision Leadership Foundation. I'm the I'm the founder and president, and we help nonprofit leaders step up their bar to performance. And today we're going to take a giant step up. We've not had any guests like this before. He's a Canadian who's come to the United States and he's legal and he's doing some good stuff in Cleveland, Ohio. So my guest today is Gordon Stein. And so Gordon, um, tell people a little bit about who you are and what's your passion for the work that you're doing? Yeah, thanks so much, Hugh. And a real pleasure to be here with you. And I'm so excited about your enthusiasm for helping these nonprofits. My background uh, began in engineering and I worked in a lot of high-tech firms executive roles, sales, marketing, and operations, companies like Apple and Dell. But I've always been very interested and passionate about personal finance. And I've been surprised at the challenges that people have with money. Uh, American Psychiatry Association says that money is our number one stress. So a few years ago, I wrote a book called Cashflow Cookbook. And more recently, I rewrote it as a US edition of that original Canadian edition. And the idea is some very concrete ways to help people with their finances, specifically how to free up up to $13,000 that can then be put toward debt repayment or incremental investment. And the book's quite timely now because people are stressed about money like never before, inflation creeping up, value of our assets dropping. And I find in employee groups or association groups or in congregations, Money is people's number one stress, and I'm excited to help with that. Well, thank you for being here today. I understand people get divorced over money issues. People leave churches. People quit donating to, to their charity or their chores because they don't feel like we've been good stewards of money. Mm -hmm. And I shared with you that I grew up as a Scottish Presbyterian. You know, the Presbyterians are the ones that say, forgive us our debts in the Lord's Prayer. So we're, we have this frugality about money. Uh, other people call it something else, but we really have some issues around the whole thing of money. And right now, you know, we're, we're in this sort of inflationary spiral and our investments are going down. So there's a, a lot of anxiety in the culture. So is that anxiety warranted or, or what do you think about that? I think it is. If you look at some of the statistics 64% of Americans will retire with less than $10,000. And $10,000 is not a bad chunk of money, but not if you have to live on it for 30 or 40 years. So if you look across the board, you know, car loans have stretched back in my day, they were 36 or 48 months. They're now 72 months on average and 96 month car loans becoming the norm. You know, you've got 70% of millennials carrying a consistent credit card balance. So any way you look at the numbers in any aspect of our lives, even divorces, 41% of divorces would find that financial issues are at the root cause of that divorce. So every aspect of our lives, this notion of presenteeism now, where people are at their jobs, but they're not mentally at their jobs because they're concerned about their money. So every aspect of our lives, it's so critical 
and we talk about wellness, an $8 billion industry in the United States, and we often miss financial wellness, but it's our number one cause of stress. Let's go back and fix that versus putting so much focus on yoga and meditation to lower our stress. Why not go back to the root cause? Yeah. So um, I think I see a copy of your book behind you. You might have one handy. So why don't you hold up your book and I'm going to tell people where your website is and, and it'll be in this episode of the nonprofit exchange. If you're watching on Facebook, uh, I'll give you the website, but you can also go to the T H E nonprofit exchange.org. And you can see this edition, this episode and all the others, and you'll find a transcription from some of these really good sound bites you're going to hear. You'll be able to see it and you'll be able to click on this link and find the book. So, so Gordon, tell us about what was the inspiration of the book and what will people find inside the book? It started as a bit of a fluke. A friend of mine was in my car and he plucked out a car wash receipt for $13. And he said, geez, why would you spend money on car washes? And at the time I was an executive, you know, with a very solid six figure income. I thought, why would I care about this $13 car wash receipt? But he showed me a trick to get car washes for free uh, legally. And uh, I thought that was pretty slick. And it was with a gas retailer. They had a little keychain dongle that's connected to their points and connected to your credit card. And you just tap it on the pump to pay for your gas, charges your credit card, credits you with points, and those points could be redeemed for a car wash. And so it saved about $25 a month. I got one for my spouse, $50 a month, but $50 a month isn't gonna make any difference at all, of course. I was just intrigued by thinking, I didn't have to give anything up. It was actually easier. And then that gave rise, I heard an ad on the radio for discounted home alarm monitoring. So I signed up with them. It was indeed connected to the police, just like a regular home alarm monitor, but it saved another $25 a month. And then my engineering MBA mind just kind of ran amok and I started to build a list. What else is there? Things that can save significant money, but take no extra effort, minimal effort, minimal sacrifice. So the list grew and it got to $13,000 of monthly savings ideas. But then it really got interested because I turned it into a spreadsheet and I did the future value calculations. So if you invested these savings rather than spending the savings, how much might you accumulate? So the numbers were massive. I took the spreadsheet to my account and I said, where's the math errors? He pondered it and said, the math's good. This would make a great book. So I set out to write it. It was gonna be a novel. I had the characters. It just didn't fit as a novel. And under my breath one day, I said, it's more like a cookbook. And I said, that's it. It's the cash flow cookbook. It's got some good alliteration, which I like. And, um, and that was the original inspiration. That's how the book got started with this idea of recipes, financial recipes, easy to follow, minimal effort, minimal sacrifice, no budgeting. They can help people free up thousands of dollars a month. It's really true. That is intriguing. So I find that there's a lot of people that um, either don't understand cash flow but understand cash flow as what I would call the rearview mirror instead of looking at cash flow in the windshield. You know, we have to forecast cash flow going forward, which is not the same as profitability in a business. That's it exactly. And, and let me give you an example. It was interesting. I did a speaking engagement and uh, inspired, I just thought it was such a great story. I inspired this one gentleman, I think he was from Kansas. And he reached out to me and he said, hey, you know, I love your talk. 
I sit here, I'm 45 years old. I have no savings. I earn six figures a year. What can I do? And that's not uncommon whatsoever. So just as a favor, and just because I, I like, you know, he was, he was keen on the book and the talk and everything. I said, send me your expenses. So we went through it and simple things. We freed up about $500 a month. He invested that with his wealth advisor. And then he sent me back a projection from his wealth advisor. He was on track to retire with half a million dollars, which isn't massive, but it's a whole lot better than nothing. And he gave up absolutely nothing. So I'd love all of your listeners you know, to help their groups, help their employees with this. There's just such a huge need and we're all in a position to help others with it. So that's the principle behind the book. So is this the kind of book that um, a membership organization, a, a local charity or, or a religious organization, a church or a synagogue would, would say, okay, let's all, let's get a group together. We'll all buy the book and we'll work through it together and see what we can share with each other and then create this accountability um, group, maybe a study cohort with an accountability culture. Is there any value in doing something like that? Yeah, that works well. I mean, let's let's reverse and engineer that a little bit, Hugh. If you imagine you're, you know, you're an employer or you're a leader of a congregation, and you know, you have a member or employee come up to you and say, Hey, listen, I'm really in trouble. I'm really fussed about my finances. You know, it's tearing up my life, it's tearing up my marriage. What do I do? Well, what toolkit do you have? So that's really the premise behind it. You can do it as a book club, you can do it as I like the idea of an accountability group. And the idea is because it's done as recipes, no one sits and reads a recipe book end to end, unless you're a real foodie. But you know, you want a salmon dish or you want a dessert or you want a chicken dish. So you can go right to that part. So the book is carved up into housing, transportation, food and drink, household, lifestyle, and financial. 10 ideas in each of those things. They're worked examples. And like a recipe, there's a yield table. How much could you save in different scenarios? And what's it worth over 10, 20, or 30 years if you can invest it? It compounds, doesn't it? It sure does. So um, how can the, the average family reduce financial stress and reach some sort of level of financial freedom? Well, I mean, if you think about, um, I've read dozens of personal finance books, and frankly, they're often depressing. So you have this notion of, you know, you need to give up things that you love. Uh, you need to do careful budgeting. Um, you need to save 10% of what you earn. And most people, they don't even know where to begin. And they don't want to give up things that they love. I mean, why would you want to give up something that you love? That's crazy. So the whole idea of cash flow cookbook is let's start with, as a first step, let's go after these mundane bills that we all pay, pay every month, our car insurance, house insurance, life insurance, telecommunications, utilities bills, property taxes, all of these things. Now, if we could reduce those bills, your change in lifestyle is nothing whatsoever, but you're able to free up cash and you're not giving up anything. So if I reduce my electricity bill by 50%, which I've done here in my home in Cleveland, or my gas bill by 50%, which I've also done, my lifestyle doesn't change at all, other than I'm going to free up that much more cash, which could go to lifestyle, could go to charitable contributions, could get invested, or could reduce debt. So if you help your members, regardless of what kind of organization you have, um, get control of their finances, that should be worth something in the reciprocity of donations to the cause. 
because it at this part of life it really feels good to be able to donate money to charitable mm -hmm. causes and still have um, some money to live on and not worry about it. So, so you want to go on a financial journey? I said, okay, I want to take a journey. What's the first step for me to take? Well, Cashflow Cookbook is full of bad cooking puns. I'm going to warn everyone right up front. So step number one is I call it broil a bill. So you take one of these bills that you're paying every month, and there's detailed instructions in the recipes, um, whatever it might be. Maybe it's your cable TV bill, or it might be your car insurance, your house insurance, whatever it is. I tell you exactly how to lower that bill. There's no yelling. There's no screaming. There's no haggling. There's nothing nasty involved. They're really simple. Most of it you do online now. Um, and let's say you go after your, your car insurance and with two cars and two drivers, not unusual to free up, say, $200 a month. That's the first step right there. But now we're going to take that and do something meaningful with it. Some people say, I don't care about money. I don't want a fancy car. No problem. But do you want to give that to your church? Or do you want to increase your charitable contributions by $200 a month? Well, you can do it without giving anything up. So that's, I think, the place to start for people is go after these more mundane things. Let's lower those bills. Let's use that cash. Let's lock it in for something productive. And as far as um, owing money on depreciating assets, any thoughts about that? Well, that's about as bad as it gets. So, <laughs> you know, if, and you see people, and that gets even worse now with the rising interest rates. You know, somebody taking out a car loan for a vehicle that they can't afford that vehicle's depreciating. Um, and you know, a third of the trade-ins now, you are underwater. So, you know, not unusual to have a 96-month car loan. Your trade-in that you're bringing in is worth less than what you owe on it. That debt gets tacked on top of it. And now we're really, but that's the reality. That's why it's such a big concern. Now we're really going backwards. And young people in particular, they don't understand the implications of the 96-month car loan the underwater equity. And, you know, the marketing machine gets more and more sophisticated, you know, functional MRIs to figure out how we buy. But as humans, we've not gotten any more sophisticated in our buying. These things are, you know, the temptations are massive. That's where they need the help. We need a, um, a, a club for, for purchases like Buyers Anonymous. We can confess and realize we're addicts. So I went to my doctor and, um, I said, um, I got high blood pressure. And he says, we'll stop watching the news. So you got these economists. I, you know, I always said that God created economists to make the meteorologists look good. Um, but, you know, there's some really good ones like Thomas Sowell, who's now 91, I believe. But, you know, they make all these predictions, which may or may not come true. So we're, we're kind of huddling down thinking, oh, we're going to be hit with this massive recession and food shortage. And there's a shortage of used cars and all of this. So what advice do you have for people to stay calm and prudent? And, you know, you can pull in your resources, but not to give up everything in life. Yeah, I, I think the key thing is not to give up anything. That's the whole premise of the book. You know, as you might tell, I can play a little bit of guitar. Um, I don't skimp on my guitars. I've got lots of fabulous guitars. I bought some kayaks recently. I get great kayaks. I go to went to see the Eagles. I get great seats. So I don't think you want to give them anything, anything up. You want to live a great life. But what you want to do is you want to lower these expenses that don't change anything. Can I give you an example that might yes. be helpful? Absolutely. So, I want several. Yeah. <laughs> we can do that. So here's one that it's just happened. It's a personal example happened recently. And the example is actually in the book. 
you mentioned your doctor and the high blood pressure. So, you know, my cholesterol was a little elevated. So um, I got prescribed some Crestor, which is probably the most common drug prescribed in America um, to lower that cholesterol. So, um, you know, get the prescription in hand. Most people, you get a prescription, you're, where's the nearest drugstore? The thing you don't think about is how much is, is it going to cost? So I took it into one of the big box uh, drugstores and got the prescription filled $107 a month forever. And, you know, it's not millions, but that's material, $107, you know, uh, expense for the rest of my life. So I said to the pharmacist, that seems a little expensive. She said, why don't you get one of our drug cards? I said, how much is the pills if I get the drug card? $63 a month. So we go from 107 to 63. It's a difference of about $500 a year. I said, how much is the drug card? $20 a year. So I thought, well, there's a no-brainer, saving $480 a year. So give me the drug card. I was telling my brother-in-law the story and uh, quite pleased with myself. <laughs> he said, no, no, no. He says, you want to go with one of the online drugstores. So he mentioned the one that he uses. I went home and I looked up my prescription on this thing, $13 a month. And I thought, you know, if it went from 107 to 63 to 13, we're not done yet. So I looked around some more online. I found another online pharmacy. I get my pills delivered to my home for $7 a month. I did a blog post on cashflowcookbook.com how I saved 94% on my prescription drugs. So most people don't know that. I see the people lined up at, you know, Walgreens and CVS to get their prescriptions. And I'm, my head is in my hands. I'm thinking they're probably overspending by about 90%, all of them, all in cash flow cookbook. Now, if I take that money, what do I do with it? I could give it to a charity. I could pay down debt. I can do whatever. And the compounding effect of that is really terrific. There's a simple example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's all kinds of examples. Uh, um, what's your opinion on using a, a, a labeled credit card? Like I use one of the hotel chains and I've hardly ever pay for an expensive hotel room because I get these points and I'm paying the same price with using a credit card that I would be paying cash. It's a great idea. I think though the first thing to do is to take a look at what that monthly spend looks like. So if you're doing a lot of travel, you're a speaker and all these kinds of things, it's fabulous. But a lot of people get these points cards thinking, oh, this is fabulous. Look at all the points you can save up. But people who don't spend a whole lot of money, typically the point value is about 2% is a decent one of your spend. Now, if you're only spending $1,000 a month, that 2% is probably ends up being worth less than what you pay for the card in annual card fees. And worse still is if they're accruing interest on things, that's going to totally wipe out the savings. So in the book, I talk a bit about reward credit cards and how to do the math on and make sure they actually make some sense. Drum roll, please. It's in the book. All right. <laughs> I personally opt for the highest interest that I can find because that's the incentive to pay the whole thing off. Right. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care what the interest is. And yep. you put it on auto pay so you don't mess up. So talk about banking. People say, oh, you shouldn't keep a large money in your bank account. Oh, well, with banking, um, you know, you can look at the, you know, the FDIC insurance on the accounts. It's not normally an issue for people. But I think there's a great way to streamline uh, banking that a lot of people don't use. For most people and married folks, um, you know, they have a big joint account and then all the income goes in and then the expenses come out. And it's a mix of discretionary things like heading out for a restaurant or buying a winter coat 
um, as well as these pre-authorized bills coming out, the, the cell phone bill, the mortgage, the taxes, et cetera. And that can cause a lot of friction because it's hard to keep track of what's about to come out. You might be looking good toward the end of the month thinking, great, I can go ahead and get my new iPhone. But you forgot about the T-Mobile bill that comes out on the 29th and the mortgage comes out on the 28th and you're in trouble. So a really simple first step for people. I love the idea of having a bills account out of which comes all of these typical monthly recurring bills. And then separate is a discretionary account. Do the math on what the bill account needs. And then all of those bills come out, you know, cell phones, car insurance, home insurance, all that life insurance, everything comes out of there. Much, much easier for the couple now to manage just the discretionary amounts. They can have a conversation and handle it, but the two aren't mixed in together. The other thing it does is it puts some focus on that bill account. So let's say the sum of that is whatever it may be, $5,000 a month. Let's go through and grind that down and lower, we could lower it to, for example, to 4,000 from 5,000, take that other thousand and let's get that working uh, more to build wealth or to give to charity, whatever the case may be. So um, the book is the cash flow cookbook and you can find it on Amazon from his website. And I just took a sneak peek at the, the table of contents. So you got it broken down to the recipes. Well, yep. you start out with a banquet. That's I, I kind of go read that, but you broke it down. Here's housing, all the things to do with housing, transportation, food and drink, household, lifestyle, financial. So it, there's quite a bit of, uh, quite a few recipes in this, this book. And you obviously are very experienced in this. So connect this to the, the social entrepreneur. Uh, we're running a cause-based for-profit business. We're running a cause-based for-purpose charity um, or membership organization or religious institution. Why is it important for the leader to be in control of their finances? Well, I think the leader and, and the congregation of the members both, but I think from a leadership perspective, I think they get all the same benefits as everyone else. You know, it reduces the stress on the marriage. It reduces their own personal stress. And there's something incredibly comforting when you see your wealth, which I would define as what you own minus what you owe. I like people to track that monthly. When you see that number rising, you've got a comfort level of things. You can, you can be calm about your own personal finances. I think it lets people move up Maslow's hierarchy. You can focus on your higher purpose. You're not as concerned with that day-to-day -day issue of your own personal finances. That would be the summary, I think, for the leader. Um, but I think the members are really important. If you've got a group, be it a congregation or their association members, their employees, whatever they are, those people aren't doing their best work. 85% of Americans are so stressed out about their money, it actually impacts their jobs. If you think about employee assistance programs, what I know from them is that 50% of the calls into employee assistance programs are about money. People are stressed about their money. We need to calm that. We need to help them with that. And then they can be more devoted and more focused on their work in the congregation, the association, or the organization. Good advice. So um, you slid this comment by, and I'm going to come back to it because I caught it. Uh, you, you said you have a better approach than monthly budgeting. So what would that be? Well, I think, you know, monthly budgeting, and there's a bunch of finance people who are going to, you know, come after me for this probably, but I'll tell you what I believe. 
monthly budgeting is it's kind of you know everybody talks about it it's you know chapter one of every personal finance book i think it has a lot of flaws you could follow a monthly budget for 40 years and still retire with no money because it doesn't focus on wealth it's the monthly in and outs but it doesn't give you the big picture of are you actually getting anywhere and we're still let's say that you said okay we're going to allocate in our budget $650 a month for car payments. I'm hoping you don't go to the car dealership and say, we've got $650 a month to spend. Because what's going to happen is you're now going to be in a 128 month loan with a Lamborghini. Um, and you're going to be paying that thing off forever. That's not prudent. It's not moving your finances forward. If you took a wealth approach instead of a monthly budgeting approach, in other words, if you said, hey, we've got some different options on our vehicle. What's going to help us accumulate wealth better? So, you know, that might be a two-year-old vehicle that's a model or two down from what you, what you might want. You might be focused more on the interest cost of the loan, very different than the monthly payment. In fact, only a quarter of people actually look at the total interest cost. Three quarters of people look at the monthly payment because they're focused on their $650 a month or whatever it is. So there's lots of reasons where it's okay to have a monthly budget. I prefer we start by taking down one bill and lowering it, getting it doing something productive. That's job one. Job two is, as we say, apply it to something that's gonna be helpful. Part three is tracking that wealth. I think it's a better way to go. And if we split our bank accounts the way we talked about, now we're gonna grind down that monthly account and get that money doing something productive and then go have fun with the rest of your money. I think it's a better approach. Don't spend it all in one place, right? <laughs> um, so so um, we're tracking really good with our time and I got one more question for you, which I yeah. think is a really key question. If a person was to only track one financial number, what should that be? It goes back to what we were saying before. This idea, some people call it net worth, and I don't like the term because I sure hope that our net worth is not just our money. Hopefully people have lots more that they're bringing into their lives and into the lives of others. I hate the expression. So it's this idea of wealth. And um, I've got a template on cashflowcookbook.com under the utensils section. Promised you lots of cooking puns. Um, and the idea, you can use a cocktail napkin or you can make an Excel spreadsheet, write your own app, whatever it is, but really to list out all of the things that you own that are of value, things you could actually sell and good luck selling furniture. So I'm talking about houses, 401k plans, deferred profit sharing plans, IRAs, whatever it is you have that's worth something, vehicles, et cetera. That's your, what you own, have that up. And then do a section on what you owe, credit cards, mortgages, HELOCs, whatever it is, add that up and then subtract the two. And it sounds a little crazy, but I think it's important and worthwhile to track that monthly for one year because what happens is you, most people are surprised they don't know what their wealth is when you have wealth it's important because it may, it gives you opportunities you could do a year sabbatical with your family you could go work in the family business you can go pursue your passion you could pursue things that are going to be helpful to others rather than focusing on a career that's just there to help you carry on paycheck to paycheck so when you do that, and then to take a look at what's happening month by month, is it going up? Are we getting those debts aggressively paid down? Or we, do we have assets that are actually growing in value versus ones that are depreciating in value? 
So when you look at that, I think it's going to change your outlook on money. And when you see that wealth accumulating, now you've got real options and possibilities for the rest of your life, because now your money can look after you. That's where I'd go. Gordon, in the same principles, the leader has accountability and principles, and then they can apply those same principles to the enterprise that they lead, whether it's a for-profit or tax-exempt organization or a religious organization. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to start. If we're going to transform an organization, it's important to transform ourselves first. And certainly finances is a big piece of that and a big stressor for so many people. Gordon Stein, you heard him say several times, his his uh, website is cashflowcookbook.com. Cashflowcookbook, just like the book name, dot com. And Gordon, when they go there, what will they find? Um, it's broken into sections. So there's blog posts, and they've been uh, a little light while I was getting the new U.S. edition out, but it'll be back. There's about 60 of them in there. And they go after all kinds of things, you know, the impact of credit score. It's kind of whatever didn't make it into the book. New ideas that I have. Sometimes it's ideas for one-time saving, how I save 94% on prescription drugs. Some of those kinds of things are in there. There's a utensil section, scripts to use when you're calling to get your cell phone bill lowered, templates to use to calculate your wealth. All those kinds of things are there in utensils. And then there's an ingredients section. I add to it all the time. These are services or companies or things that can help. Car insurance comparison engines, home insurance comparison engines. All of those kinds of things are in there. Um, and there are companies, there are organizations, there are things that you can buy that can actually help you uh, save money. So that's in there. Then a little bit about me and a bit more about Cashflow Cookbook. So that's the site. It's got a five-star rating on Amazon. And it's 1995 paperback and $7 on Kindle. Why in the world wouldn't you want to buy that book? So uh, Gordon Stein, um, it's a refreshing look at something different. It's personal empowerment, personal freedom. And that really accelerates our own leadership ability because we've taken a huge emotional load off our plate. So as a parting thought, what, what do you want to leave with people with today? I think, you know, organizations getting your own uh, financial world straight, I think is critical, but I think you need some sort of a method of helping your group, your congregation, your employees with their financial wellness. I would ask them to take a look. Do you have a program for financial wellness for your people? Not just wellness broadly, but the most important part, which I think is where the biggest issue is, financial wellness. I speak to groups. I'd be happy to come out uh, and do something with their group get together on a speaking engagement. Well, you can tell he's got a great voice and he's got that Canadian A thing going on here. So we <laughs> Americans find that fascinating. So we welcome you in our country and thank you for bringing all the goodness with you. This is Hugh Ballou for the Nonprofit Exchange. You can find it at the, T-H-E, Nonprofit Exchange, thenonprofitexchange.org, where you'll find just a great resource with a lot of episodes different than this, but similar that they're all high quality and valuable to your life. So Gordon, thank you for being our guest today on the Nonprofit Exchange. Real pleasure to be here. Thanks so much, Hugh. Thank you for listening to the Nonprofit Exchange.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.